I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, dogs have an amazing ability to show us love. Is their affection unique? And what's the secret to their success? I don't believe that dogs have any special form of intelligence. What I think is the secret of dog success in the human world is that they have these immense hearts. They have this immense drive, desire to love members of other species. And later, purebred or mutts, the history behind dog breeding. And is a dog's personality really defined by its pedigree? Treat each dog as an individual, just like you do when you're looking for new human friends. We, we take people as they are, we get to know individuals, and that's how we should think about dogs as well, not getting so wound up about what breed is this. From wolf pup to human companion, the growing body of science behind our dog's love. That's coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Whether you own a dog or just like dogs, you're no stranger to the sense of joy, affection, and love we get from our four-legged friends. That special bond between humans and dogs can be traced back thousands of years, thanks to their ability to offer loyalty, work, and companionship. So do dogs have the capacity to love us back? Or is their devotion and companionship just more transactional, a response to us giving them shelter and treats? Over the last few decades, the science behind dog behavior and training has exploded. Academics and scientists study dogs' intelligence, biology, and skills. But it's not a dog's brain power that makes them unique. Author and canine researcher Clive Wynn says it's the dog's ability to form relationships with other species that makes them so special. Wynn is a psychologist and founder of the Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University and the author of Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. Clive Wynn, welcome to Life Examined. Jonathan, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be with you. So my first question is kind of a simple one. How do you exactly study a dog in a lab psychologically? I mean, I'm assuming it's something you do all the time. Well, absolutely. So we do many different kinds of things. We have a room at the university and we have people bring their dogs along to our room and we ask them to do uh, little tricks for us. Like one of my favorite recent experiments is we ask people to climb inside this box and then to cry out as if they're in distress in the box. And we have a video camera on their dog who's outside the box and we just watch what the dog does. And does the dog seem to be upset that their that their poor human is stuck in the box and is unhappy in the box? And and most crucially, will the dog try and open the box to free their poor human from what's going on in there? Um, and the answer to that is that about one dog in three. So these dogs are not taught how to open the box. Obviously, you could teach a box to open a teach a dog to open a box, and they would do it. But we don't teach them. We just want to see can they do this on their own, all on their own. And the answer is about one dog in three will open the box to free their human who seems to be in distress in there. Mm. But I think that the other two thirds, we see all the dogs look very, very upset. But two thirds of the dogs cannot figure out how to get this box open. And we know that that's where their problem lies because the box actually has a hole in the top of it. And so we do an additional test where we let the dog see that we have a really nice treat. And we drop this treat into the box through the hole in the top. And we see, will the dog open the box to get the treat out? And only one dog in three opens the box to get the treat out. And that's the same one dog in three that opens the box to free their owner. So I think that it's safe to say that all dogs are upset when their poor beloved human is trapped in a box or appears to be trapped in a box. Uh, but only one dog in three is actually smart enough to figure out on their own how to get that box open. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the that's one of the approaches that we take. We bring people with their with the dogs that they live with into a room that we have at the university, and we we give them little challenges that we think shed light on the nature of the dog human relationship. Mm. So that that's one thing that we do. Actually, a lot of our work we do at animal shelters because I realized early on in this that there is a pointy end to the human-dog relationship. I mean, people love their dogs. Dogs love their people back, which is, you know, this book that I wrote, Dog is Love, which is all about how dogs really do love people. But that doesn't mean that it's all plain sailing. That doesn't mean that it's always happy and that everything always works well. 
And so I want as much as possible to put my efforts and the efforts of the students who work with me towards improving the dog-human relationship. And the pointy end, the worst part, the most difficult aspect of the life of dogs in human society in first world countries like the United States is those millions of dogs who end up in animal shelters. Mm. And that is a very stressful environment for the dogs. And, you know, this has been getting better over the years, but there are still hundreds of thousands of dogs are euthanized every year around animal shelters because homes cannot be found for them. Mm -hmm. So we've put a lot of our effort into trying to improve their lives while they're in the shelter and thinking of things that can be done to help them find their way out. And I want to talk a little bit about what you've learned just about the essence of a dog or how they function. You know, it's funny. Yeah. I, a dog jumped up on a couch yesterday. I was sitting with a friend. It was his dog. And he said, how could anybody not love a dog? They're all heart. <laughs> And yeah. that idea that they're all heart really kind of stuck with me. And I, I wonder if that points to a little bit of what you've been looking at when you think of this human-dog relationship. Oh, absolutely, Jonathan. So, I mean, there are two schools of thought. I guess they're not mutually uh, exclusive, but there are two schools of thought about how can it be that dogs are so successful in the modern world because they are, right? I mean, they are. there might be a billion dogs on the surface of this planet. And obviously the answer is to how dogs can be so numerous and so successful in the modern world is that they get along so well with humans. But there, there are then two broad schools of thought. There are those people who believe that dogs have special kinds of intelligence, that there are special kinds of smarts that dogs have that other animals don't have that enable dogs to figure out how to succeed in our human-dominated world. I don't subscribe to that school of thought, Jonathan. So I know that this is where this is where I can annoy people because I know that there are people who think that their dogs are very, very clever. And I'm not for a moment denying that there are some very, very clever dogs out there. Not my dog, but there are some very clever dogs out there. Before I ever discovered dogs as a scientist, I worked with pigeons, I worked with rats, I worked with marsupials. Actually, a lot of animals are cleverer than most people realize, right? There are actually a lot of, there's a lot of cleverness in the animal world. I don't believe that dogs have any special form of intelligence. What I think is the secret of dog success in the human world is that they have these immense hearts. They have this immense drive, desire to love members of other species. Most animals only form loving relationships with members of their own species. That's what you could more or less call natural, right? But dogs, like ourselves, have a capacity and a drive and a desire to have strong emotional bonds with members of other species. We see it mostly that they want to love us. But that's, that's our perspective. Of course, we see that they want to love us. But actually, dogs can and do form relationships with many, many other species if they are brought up alongside them when they're small. Mm. But every dog you've ever met, every dog I've ever met, grew up around human beings. When it was a puppy, there were people around it. And so it goes on through life with an amazing... I mean, the truth is, right, you go and you visit with a friend... And the dog will jump up on the, as you just described, the dog will jump up on the sofa next to you, might want to cuddle with you. If it's my dog, probably want to kiss you. If any human being acted like that, you'd think there was something wrong with them, right? This is really much too much love <laughs> comes out of dogs in some sense. Um, but, you know, that, that I think is the secret of their success. I, I think it's, it's why we love them back. It's why it's hard. It's a hard-hearted person who wouldn't reciprocate, I mean, I don't kiss my dog, but I reciprocate her love in many, many ways. And I care for her and I, I'm away from home right now. And I'm always asking my wife, how's the dog? And how's everything going with the dog? Because, you know, she's so loving, I have to love her back. Yeah. What do we know about the science of this almost uh, empathetic gene or something in them? I mean, is, is there a way that we can understand why it is they have this incredible ability to form these emotional relationships? Well, absolutely, Jonathan. So, you know, this is what my students and I have been working on for at least a decade now. And other people 
as well. In many different forms of science are looking into this, and I talk about it all in in the book "Dog Is Love." Um, my own research is primarily behavioral research. I study behavior, and so I can see, like this experiment I was describing, where one in three dogs will rescue their human from a box. That's one way of measuring, of attempting to to get a scientific grasp on how dogs feel about people. That they're very upset when they hear that their person's in distress. You can try this at home very easily. You just sit down on the sofa and pretend to cry. You don't have to be a star actor or anything. You don't have to be particularly good at this. But your dog, you won't if you're if you're pretending to cry. You might not be able to see this very well. So you might want to have a friend watching or put up a. Put up a video on your cell phone.、Uh, yeah, dogs are very quickly distressed to detect that their human is unhappy. You see this very easily.、Uh, we do a very very simple study. We just put a chair in a room, and we mark a circle of about three and a half feet, one meter radius around the chair. We separate a person from their dog. Only needs to be for ten minutes. We put the person in the chair, and then we let the dog in the room, and we just measure how much time does the dog spend inside the circle with their special person. And what we find when we do this is that for the first two minutes, the dog spends the whole time inside the circle. It's just so important to a dog to be with their human when they've just been separated. So we did this super simple thing, and we did it with dogs. And we also have the great good fortune to work with hand-reared wolves out at Wolf Park in Indiana. Now, all dogs, no matter what breed they are, are all descended from wolves about twenty thousand years ago.、Uh, you can tame wolves. You can take a, a wild-type animal, genetically wild animal, but you can hand-rear it, and you can turn it into an animal that is, you know, pretty happy to be around people. But you do that same test with these hand-reared wolves at Wolf Park, and you don't get anything like the same result. If you separate the wolf from a person that that animal has been friends with since more or less the day it was born, or certainly the second week of life,、uh, and you separate them and you bring them back together, the wolf is nothing like as excited, nothing like as excited to be able to spend time with its special human being. So we do a very, very simple behavioral experiment, and then we bring in a geneticist friend who takes DNA, genetic material, from the wolf and from the dog. Which nowadays all you need is a mouth swab. It's completely painless, completely non-intrusive thing to do. So we have the DNA from the dogs, the DNA from the wolves, and we've been able to compare their behavior in a very simple, straightforward behavioral test. And we were actually able to identify three genes that have evolved in the journey from wolf to dog, and those three genes are responsible for this difference in behavior. And now the really interesting thing, Jonathan, is that there are a very, very small number of people who have also experienced changes to those three genes. There's a very rare syndrome called Williams. Buren syndrome, and Williams-Buren syndrome. Actually, Williams-Buren syndrome doesn't just involve those three genes; it involves a total of twenty-eight genes. And because it involves a large number of genes, it has a wide variety of impacts. People with Williams-Buren syndrome, they have heart and circulatory defects. They have somewhat strange facial appearance, facial structure. But the most striking thing about them, the unique symptom of Williams-Buren syndrome. Is that these people are unbelievably friendly and loving, so they actually show what you could call a sort of dog-like pattern of behavior, and that that's that's really an amazing thought that we may have actually pinned down genes in dogs that are responsible for their very very loving natures. So that's just a little bit of the science that I've been personally involved in, but there are many other people studying this question in many different ways. There's a professor at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, Gregory Burns, who has trained dogs to lie perfectly still in MRI scanners. So I don't know how many of your listeners have had an MRI scan, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, 
it's an unsettling experience. Yeah. You get slid into this big metal cylinder and it makes a great deal of noise. It's all rather intimidating. And nobody had ever before been able to get an animal to lie perfectly still in the scanner. Because if what you want to do, what he did, what Burns did, is he scanned the dog's brain. And in order to do that, the dog has to keep its head perfectly still. Now, with a human being, you can say, please keep your head perfectly still, and people will do that. But with the dogs, you know, how do you do that? Well, it takes months of very, very careful training to bring the dog to a situation where the dog is happy and willing to jump into the scanner and lie perfectly still. And now you can show the dog a sign that says, hey, in a moment, I'm going to give you a piece of sausage. And you can see from the scanner how the reward center in the dog's brain lights up. Hey, I'm going to get some sausage. But then you can show the dog another sign. And that other sign means in a moment, you're going to see your beloved human being. And what's really exciting is that that makes the reward center in the dog's brain light up just as much, if not more, than the sign that means that you're going to get a piece of sausage. So we actually have scientific proof that your dog loves you more than a piece of sausage. So I think that's kind of fun. That is fun because sometimes we joke, dog owners, that do you only love me, dog, because I feed you? And right. it turns out that maybe that's not true. Well, so the, so the thing is, Jonathan, usually it can seem like your dog loves you more than sausage. But what we, what we fail to spot is that when that happens, we are there too. Mm. So if I was to grab, if my dog was with me, if I was to grab a, a sausage or some dog treat, my dog would be very excited and very focused on that piece of sausage. But the thing is, that piece of sausage is in my hand. The dog doesn't have to decide, do I love him more than I love this sausage? Because it's me with sausage. She's getting uh -huh. both things at once. What you need to do, and we've done this too, so um, my past student, Erica Furbacher, who's now at Virginia Tech University, she did a very simple, beautiful experiment. You have a dog that, like too many dogs, is home alone while the owner is out of work. So six, eight, whatever hours. And we set things up so that while the owner is away for the purpose of this test, the dog receives no food. All day long, no food. All day long, no beloved human being. And then in the garage, we set up two spots. On one spot stands the beloved owner. On the other spot is a bowl of food. We have somebody open the door between the garage and the house after the dog has been home alone with nothing to eat for six or eight hours. And now, now the dog really has to choose. Do I go to the food or do I go to the to my beloved human being? Which which is more important to me? I have been deprived of both of these valuable things for an equal length of time. And now I have to decide which one is more important. And you know what, Jonathan? Eight out of 10 dogs choose their human. Mm. Eight out of 10 dogs choose their human in preference to the food, even though they haven't had anything to eat all day long. Oh, so your dog does love you, or at least... I say your dog does love you. Your dog might be one of the two out of 10. <laughs> but most people's dogs do love them more than they love food. Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, to get back to the question of genetics, um, you mentioned the dogs, all the domesticated dogs, that they descend from wolves. And so mm -hmm. are we talking about a story of evolution, of gene mutation, of, of selecting dogs that you know have the traits that would make them more apt to be domesticated? I mean, can you walk us through a little bit of the history of, of how... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So this, this totally fascinates me, and I want to make this my next book. So the standard story is that our ancestors recognized that having a tame wolf around the camp could be a useful thing to have around, might help protect us, might help us when we're hunting, and that we started actively going out and stealing wolf pups and gradually selecting the nicest, easiest ones mm. to be our companions, and that we invented the dog. Well, I'm afraid I really don't think that's likely. I think what actually happened was that a perfectly natural evolutionary process took place where when our ancestors became settled, 
which started to happen probably about 15 to 20,000 years ago, people started settling down. And when humans settle down, there's one way you can always tell that the humans were there. And that is that there are piles of trash. Now, you think, you know, you see piles of trash in a modern environment, you think this is a horrible modern habit. But that's not the case at all. People have been making mounds of bones and mounds of shells going back as long as people have been settled in any one place. And when that happens, we don't see a trash as having any value, right? These are bones that we've taken all the good stuff out from. We don't see them as having any more value. But other species, they see value in, in human trash. And, you know, in the United States, we employ people to keep wild animals away from trash dumps around cities. But if you travel in the third world, if you go to India or Mexico or whatever, you will find animals all over the trash dumps. And that's what would have happened all those thousands of years ago. And the animals that tolerated people best would have been able to get the most value from our trash dumps. And so natural selection, ordinary evolution would have acted on the wolves that started feeding on human trash to make them more and more tolerant of human beings in their vicinity. And that's actually what led to, led to the development of the animal that we love now. They gradually became more and more friendly towards people because at least to start with, being tolerant and friendly of the people was the best way to get the maximum out of the trash dumps that the people created. And then, of course, very quickly, if you have some animals on your trash dump that are more friendly, that are gentler, that you don't need to be so worried about, and if those animals themselves are afraid of other wild animals, like the wolves that are still really scary and wolfy, or bears, or for that matter, of course, other groups of human beings who are very, you know, humans, unfortunately, have been dangerous to each other for thousands and thousands of years. And if those animals that are living on the edge of your village make a noise when something dangerous starts to appear, well, that's tremendously useful, right? I mean, that's a fantastic feature of dogs to this day. I mean, my dog is not the world's smartest dog, but she will bark when somebody unfamiliar comes up to the front door, and that's really useful. So I think that's, you know, that's where this relationship started. And um, gradually, dogs found more and more ways of being useful to our ancestors. And part of that from both sides was that the emotional connection makes the business partnership all the more effective. If you get along with your colleagues, you work together so much better than if you just have a completely functional relationship. So, um, so that I think is the original, the originating story of our relationship with dogs. We'll be back with Clive Wynn after this short break. And just a quick minute for us to say thank you to those of you who continue to join our new Life Examined Facebook group. We loved reading your comments on last week's conversation about anxiety. Thank you to Nikisa Abdullahi for sharing your thoughts. Also, thanks to Nancy Beverly for sharing her story on meeting Kentucky writer Wendell Berry. We've read all your comments and invite you to keep sharing with us and with each other. We're glad you're listening and helping to build a community. Oh, and if you feel like posting a photo of your dog on the page, go for it. I think I'll do the same. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching on Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We'll be back after the short break. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We're continuing our conversation with Clive Wynn, psychologist and founder of the Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University. His latest book is called Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. There he unpacks the latest canine science in understanding the secret of dog's success. 
Let's jump back into my conversation about the process of breeding dogs. Well, and I love how you mention almost this business relationship with dogs, because what we know about the history of dogs, too, is they were not just, you know, lap animals, but they were workers. And I know people, including myself, are fascinated by how dogs became so incredibly bred for specific tasks. I mean, it speaks to me of the, the malleability of these dogs as well. I mean, how how did that come to be? Do we have any sense of, of the breeding process over these thousands of years? Oh, well, Jonathan, that is such a fascinating question and very, very hard to pin down. So we know, I mean, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, they wrote about what you can do with dogs and what kind of dogs you can you should use for different things. Mm. So so there are, you know, the Romans, there are several books, you know, I'm not going to remember the guy's name, but there was a guy who wrote a book about how to keep a farm. Uh. And in that book, he says, well, to guard your farm, you need this kind of a dog that is not interested in hunting, because if you get a dog to guard your farm who likes who likes hunting, well, that dog will never stay home because he'll always be running off hunting something and that'll be <laughs> right. useless for a guard dog. So the Romans thought that different types of dog came from different parts of the world. And that was probably true. That was probably true. The way evolution works, if you have an animal that's spread across a very wide geographic area, it will tend to have different shapes, different colors and different parts of its geographic area. And so it probably was the case you know, the Romans said, well, this kind of dog came to us from India and this kind of dog came to us from the British Isles. And whether they were precisely correct about where different kinds of dogs had come from, we have no way of knowing. But the idea that different kinds of dogs had come from different parts of the world was probably true. So originally, let's say two, three, four, five thousand years ago, different parts of the world just through natural processes, different sizes and shapes and colors of dogs came about. And that's, you know, I mean, you see that today, right? I mean, I live in Phoenix, Arizona, and the kind of dog that can survive there on its own is a small, short-haired dog because it's really, really hot. Whereas as we're talking, I'm visiting my mother in England, which is a lot colder and a lot wetter. And so the kind of dog that would survive in England outdoors is going to be a bigger, heavier set beast with much thicker fur. And so three, four, five thousand years ago, that's how it came to be that you had different broad types of dogs. But then when we read what the Romans were saying, it's pretty clear that the Romans could see a value in keeping these different kinds of dogs separate. You want one kind of dog to help you go hunting. You want a different kind of dog to guard your farm. And you probably don't want your farm guarding dogs to interbreed with your hunting dogs because, well, you know, you want them to have different habits, different personalities. Keep that separate. So there was some kind of, I don't want to call them breeds because that comes later, but there was some kind of recognition that it was useful to have different kinds of dogs going back a few thousand years. And then very, very recently, compared to the thousands of years, just about 150 years ago, people suddenly figured out that if you really took an interest in your dog's sex life and you didn't just let them breed with whoever they wanted to, but you said, well, I'm going to take this dog and breed it to this girl dog and they both do this thing that I like, or they both have this fur that I like, or they both, you know, have this snout that I like. And I want to guarantee that they have puppies that have that quality. So I'm going to I'm going to breed them very, very close together. And in the late 19th century, in the Victorian times, this sort of fanaticism developed for inbreeding. And so they bred fathers to daughters and then to their granddaughters or you know to them they bred very very intense inbreeding and that led to a situation where you could make a dog you can make them any shape any size any color any whatever that you might want and in the late 19th century in the early 20th century people thought this was so exciting and such fun that you could do this it was a whole new thing 
And that's what led to the 200 and something breeds of dog that we have today. And on the one hand, great. On the other hand, you know, that's why we have golden retrievers. There was a there was a lord in Scotland and he had retrievers and they were all black. And then his friend had a yellow dog. And so he bought the yellow dog and he bred it to his black retrievers. And now, hey, he's got the yellow retrievers and they're like different than anybody else's retrievers. And this is really cool and exciting. But they understood how to do the breeding, but they didn't understand genetics. And so a terrible tragedy happened as they were doing that, that we still live with today. And that is, so you're breeding together a a male dog to his mother or to his daughter because you want this really intense inbreeding to guarantee that you get the shape and color and size and everything else that you want. So you're capturing the genes for a golden coat color. You're capturing the genes for a long snout or a short snout. But what's happening, which they didn't realize, they didn't know anything about genetics, is that at the same time, by accident, you would capture genes for genetic diseases, of which the most common are many forms of cancer. And so there are dogs, breeds of dogs today that are damned to very short lives and to, you know, certain kinds of cancers because they were accidentally captured in the late 19th, early 20th century when the intense inbreeding was being driven to create these guaranteed shapes, colors, sizes, forms of dogs that they wanted. So it's, it's, a, it's a terrible tragedy, and it could be fixed. Modern geneticists could help dog breeders to, to get rid of these cancer genes over a few generations. But unfortunately, it just isn't the, the broad understanding of this in the dog breeding population at large. So mm. a lot of dogs suffer because of it. Yeah, and you know what that story highlights to me is that it, this is really quite a modern phenomenon that you're talking mm. about. This only happened in the past couple hundred years. I think most of us think of these breeds as you know <laughs> the short hair pointer being around for a thousand years or something. But I think the, the exact thing that we see now is something that is, is more recent, and right. I, it brings up I think really kind of complicated ethical questions that you're getting to here, and a lot of debates between um, you know these these inbred dogs that are quite beautiful and you can get the exact one you want versus the healthier dog, which might be um, a mix or found in a pound, or a lot of the questions we talk about now, um, what's the right type of dog to own? I, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Sure, sure. Well, so I have I have two sets of thoughts that we can separate out. One is that, you know, I'm a mutt myself. I love mutts. I'm happy with a dog that just has a fun personality. I, I don't want a dog that's too small or too big. But aside from that, It's all, you know, I love them all. It's all great. It's all great. But that said, you know, I understand that there are people who love golden retrievers. I love golden retrievers. There are people who love border collies. I love border collies. But I think it would be useful for people to recognize that this intensive inbreeding that led us to a situation where we can guarantee the shape and form and color of a dog has had these very negative impacts and and something could be done about that if the will was there. As I say, a certain amount of judicious outbreeding, this has been done with Dalmatians, where it used to be the case that pretty much every Dalmatian died of liver disease, a genetic liver disease. But they were able, by carefully bringing in some non-Dalmatians and breeding for a few generations until you get the Dalmatian look and shape and color back, But now without that liver disease, it is possible to repair these things with modern knowledge of genetics. Uh, But as I say, there there is a lot of resistance to doing that, which is a great shame. And of course, then there are the dog breeds like the pugs and so on that are just anybody can see. Right. You don't have to spend a lot of time around a pug type dog with its very smushed in snout you can easily see that those poor dogs can hardly breathe. Um, and, and, and yeah, so we should just, 
I've, I've, surely, surely we have to recognize that the health of the animal has to come first, right? I mean, isn't that the absolute starting point here? We should we should be seeking out healthy, happy dogs, not going crazy about the shape and and so on when that obviously just causes suffering. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's an important point. Getting back to this question of dogs and this innate ability for them to love, um, can can their allegiance change from owner to owner? Are they always bound to one person? I, I think you can see a dog kind of take to different homes, I think, when you're around them. Absolutely, Jonathan. Thanks for bringing that up. So, so I think, and I'm, I'm sure it's easy for people, it's not, it's not a controversial idea that the, the pleasure, the joy in sharing your home with a dog is how much your dog loves you. Mm. Now, your dog does sincerely love you, but the way your dog loves you, dog love is not the same as human love. And so dogs, they do love particular people and they will remember that person for years. I mean, Charles Darwin himself, you know, he went around the world on this boat and it took four years. And he actually wrote about how when he came home, his dog still recognized him. So you can go away for years and your dog will still recognize you and still love you. But that doesn't mean that your dog could not make new friends uh-huh. and form new strong relationships. So I know a lot of people are reluctant to adopt an adult dog from their local animal shelter because they think this would be like trying to adopt a teenage child, right? You try and adopt a teenage human or an adult human, it's more difficult to form the loving bond, right? Because we human beings, we're kind of a bit sticky about love. Um, But dogs are more fluid. And dogs, sure, you adopt an adult. We adopt, our dog was one year old when she came to us. And you could tell the first so many weeks that she was confused and she didn't know who we were and she didn't know that she belonged with us. She kept trying to run away. But I wish I'd kept detailed notes at the time. I'm going to say in retrospect, I'm guessing it was maybe two months that she knew she was with us. And now if you came and visited us, Jonathan, you would never guess that this loving dog had not been with us from the moment she was born because she's crazy about us because we're crazy about her too. So, so absolutely dogs can and do form new strong relationships all the way through their lives. And that's, that's one of the wonderful things about them. I mean, okay, if, if you were to adopt a five-year-old dog, if you would adopt my dog who's now 10 years old, she would be all confused and she would miss us. Uh, But after a few weeks or certainly a couple of months, she would settle in and she'd love you, Jonathan, just like she loves me Mm. now. I mean, that's that's her doggy nature. Yeah. And I'm glad you bring up this this question of dog adoption, because um, a lot of people have concerns about adopting a dog, maybe not just the love component, but the behavioral questions that can come with a dog from the pound. And, And, you know, I've seen this in both ways. I have friends that have a, a pound dog that is that is lovely and warm and has been trained to love others. And I've seen other pound dogs that never really became very warm to strangers or were always very territorial. And so can any dog, no matter the trauma they've been through, eventually become trainable and uh, sociable to outsiders or the world they live in? So I cannot say, Jonathan, any dog. Hmm. I mean... Many dogs, most dogs, yes. I cannot say any dog because sadly there is some small minority of dogs who who never work out with, with human homes. Now, that said, I don't know of any evidence that that's any more of a problem with dogs that have been living in animal shelters than dogs that... Um, that have always been people's pets. Mm. I don't, I don't know. I cannot think of any scientific study that has compared the rate of problems. I think there has been a study showing that dogs from puppy mills have a higher rate of problems than dogs raised in other ways. I think there is a study on those lines, but just comparing dogs living in a shelter, being adopted from a shelter, to dogs uh, that have always lived in human homes. I don't think there's anything. But but here's the thing, Jonathan. I mean, what I think people... So one thing I say to people, because people often ask my advice about what kind of dog they should get. 
And my, my first thing is forget about breed, forget about breed. I mean, sure, you're entitled to say I prefer a dog of this size because, you know, the size of my home or whatever. And a dog with this kind of fur because, you know, I live in a hot climate or a cold climate. Those are all valid things to think about. But we tend to think of dog breed the way we think of like marks of car, right? I mean, if you had a good Honda Accord and it worked for you, when you come to replace it, you may well replace it with another Honda Accord and you'll have very much the same experience again. But the science says that is not true of breeds of dog. The personalities of different dogs are just as varied within any one breed as they are from one breed to the next breed. So unless you need a dog to do one of the tasks that certain breeds of dog were bred for. So if you need a pointer, a dog that will point at a duck that's in the in the grass, then you need to get a pointing breed of dog. If you need to herd sheep, then you need to get a herding breed of dog. But for most of us, those kind of considerations just have no relevance. Most of us are just looking for a companion, somebody who will hang out with us in the ways that we want to hang out with a dog. I mean, I know people go jogging with their dog. I'm very lazy. I just watch TV with my dog. I have an excellent TV watching dog. Mm -hmm. um, what, what people should do is they should go to their local animal shelter and good animal shelters will let you borrow a dog, let you foster a dog, at least for the weekend and maybe for a week or two so that you can really get to know this individual. Treat each dog as an individual, just like you do when you're looking for new human friends. Hopefully people don't go out looking for new human friends saying, you know, I've, I need a human friend of a certain race or whatever. No, we, we take people as they are. We get to know individuals. And that's how we should think about dogs as well. Not getting so wound up about what breed is this. I heard that this breed of dog is always, you know, this thing or that thing. No, it's all about individuals. And if you can find a shelter that will let you borrow a dog for a few days or a week, that's by far the best method. Uh, and yeah. even if you don't like that dog, maybe somebody else that you take, you take the dog to a cafe and somebody else really likes the dog and say, well, look, I don't like this dog after all. You know, you could go to this shelter and they'll let you have him. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that, that there's such a range of personality within breeds because I think this has gotten us into a lot of cultural trouble with dogs. Like the pit bull, I think, is maybe the biggest example of this. We now see a pit bull and say it's violent no matter what. Yeah. And... I think the science just isn't true on that from what I've heard from you and from what I've read on my own. Right, absolutely. So so all all the science points to the personality is not driven by the dog's breed and and in particular the risk of aggression is not driven by a dog's breed. Not the pitbull is actually technically speaking a breed of dog. It's a sort of a broad category of dogs. Um so we really have to give ourselves the chance to get to know the individual animal. Each individual is unique. I have actually visited with this guy who had his dog cloned and he had two clones. So clones are individuals who are genetically identical. They're like identical genetic twins. These dogs were made up from the same genetic material. They were carried in the same mother's womb. They were born within moments of each other. They have never been out of each other's company. So not only are they the same breed, they are as identical as two individuals could possibly be. And yet, when I met with them, their personalities were complete chalk and cheese. One was very extrovert and friendly and all the rest of it. And the other was much quieter, much more introvert, much more shy. So you know, you really have to give yourself to, the chance to get to know an individual, even if the individuals you're meeting are clones of each other, they're still going to be really different in personality. Mm. You know, can dogs also, I mean, just as they love in certain ways and certain people, can they also discriminate against things or people that they do not love? I mean, it's interesting. You, you hear sometimes of this idea of like a racist dog or a dog oh, yeah. that has specific tastes. Um, is that true as well? Oh, I'm, I'm, unfortunately, it's very, very much true. I mean, in, in older times, in older times, people used to actively exploit dogs' ability to discriminate different kinds of people. Uh, when Columbus came to the Americas, he brought war dogs over with him from Spain 
because he quickly noticed that the dogs could easily discriminate between Native Americans and the Spanish invaders. Probably they, I mean, they not only would look different, but they would also smell very different because they'd eat differently and nobody washed in those days. So they, they doubtless had much stronger body odor and it was very different. Um, and people have exploited that kind of thing, sadly, all through the centuries. Um, and And dogs very quickly get to discriminate between different classes of people. I don't really know why, but my dog, who loves pretty much everybody, is not keen on guys with beards. Um, mm. I don't know why. I'm not aware of any experience that she's had with a guy <laughs> with a beard. But there are just there is just a natural uh, tendency. And if a dog grows up not meeting people of certain you know body forms when they're young, then as they get older, they will get more set in their ways and more suspicious of people who look and possibly smell very different from what they're used to. So I think it is valuable if you have a puppy, if you have a young dog, to try and give that dog maximum experience around different kinds of people so that your dog does not become an embarrassing racist yeah. for you. This, I think, was a really big problem during the pandemic because there were so many dog adoptions in that period. You know, you heard of shelters just being totally wiped out of dogs yeah. and that a lot of these dogs were raised kind of in quarantine. And yes, some yes. of those valuable experiences they might have had, you know, being with other dogs or seeing other people never happened. And I mean, just anecdotally, you hear about now a lot of dog owners are dealing with these behavioral issues, but kind of a fascinating time that we're living through that the dog became so vital to our lives. And yet uh, we're sitting with a lot of the questions of that now. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think it's it, I, I think it's very interesting how over the thousands of years that we've lived with dogs. Dogs have found so many different things they can do for us. And now in the 21st century, the main thing that their main job is just to protect us from loneliness. You know, um, we live in a period where more people mm. live on their own than have ever done before in human history. And, um, you know, we don't need a dog to go hunting. We don't need a dog to guard for us. We don't need a dog to herd sheep. We just need a dog to keep us company. And my goodness, they're good at it. Getting back to your book called Dog is Love, you tell this great story about the penguin colony in Australia. And I was wondering if you could bring us into that story um, while we still have you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm always talking about dogs loving people. and Dogs do love people. But when I'm trying to be a bit precise about what I tell people, the truth is that dogs will love anything. Dogs will love anything. We see dogs loving us because we're human. And so that's what we would see. People for centuries or millennia have been using dogs to guard livestock, especially sheep and goats, but also sometimes horses and cattle. And you can just leave the dogs out in, in the paddock, in the field, wherever you are. And if they grew up around the livestock species, the, I visited a goat rancher and he had goats who... He had dogs who take care of his goats. And the secret is just you put the dog in the goat barn when he's a puppy and he'll grow up loving goats the way that we're used to experiencing dogs loving us. And so I visited for the purpose of the book, I visited a goat rancher and I saw this for myself and, and it's really wonderful. But then I also read about the most amazing example of this, which is in the southeast of Australia on an island with the not exactly catchy name of Middle Island. And this island is home to a colony of penguins. But sadly, at certain times of year, the tide goes out so far that foxes have been able to get out onto the island and decimate the penguin population. And this happened repeatedly. And the local people were getting quite desperate because they could hardly put up massive fences in the ocean to stop the foxes getting out. And there was a nearby chicken farmer who had free range chickens that were protected by a dog. And so he reasoned, well, look, you know, if if the dog will protect the chickens, why couldn't we get a dog to protect the penguins? And so starting, what, five or more years ago now, they started putting dogs, they built little kennels for them so they didn't get too cold out on the island with the penguins. <laughs> And these dogs, they start out there as puppies and they fall in love with penguins. And so they go around the island 
protecting the penguins and making sure that no foxes come out. And they've had no more trouble since then. It's just a beautiful story. Yeah, and it illuminates your point. The dogs will love anything if given the chance, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned perhaps the the main driver of a lot of this in your life, which is your dog, Zephos. I, I wonder if there's any final stories that you would share about experiences with that dog or how the dog has informed your, your thinking about dogs. Absolutely. So I was studying dogs for several years before Zephos came into our lives. And there are a bunch of personal family reasons why, although my wife and I both grew up with dogs and loved them. We didn't have one at the, when I first started studying dogs. But then we got this dog and she came into my life just at a point where I was c becoming convinced that dogs do not have any special form of intelligence. Remember I was saying that there are some scholars who think that the secret of dog success in human society is their intelligence. I was mm -hmm. becoming convinced that was wrong, but I didn't really know what to replace it with. And then we bring this animal into our lives and she's, as I think I've already said, she's clearly not a particularly smart dog. She's really not the quickest, the sharpest knife in the drawer. But it's very, very quickly apparent that she's so unbelievably loving. I mean, it just it just shines out of every pore in her little body how much she loves us and how very quickly she loves new people who come to the door. She's always pretty friendly to anybody who comes to the door once. But if somebody should come back a second time, it's almost embarrassing. So if we have, for example, some problem with the plumbing or the electrical in the house that cannot be fixed in one visit and requires the plumber or the electrician to come back for a second visit, then it is almost embarrassing how much our dog loves these guys who, you know, really they're complete strangers. She's, there's no reason to become so enamored of plumber, electrician or whatever, but she totally does. She totally does. And so she taught me the secret of dog success. She explained it to me that it is this amazingly loving nature that, uh, that is indeed the, the reason why they are so successful and so welcome in our human homes. I've been speaking with Clive Wynn, psychologist and founder of the Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University. He's also the author of Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. Clive, uh, thank you so much for, for this really fun interview. I really appreciate it. Jonathan, I really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much. The producer of Life Examine is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us. Have a great day and we'll see you next week.